Part Second of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad, The Isabels, Chapter Five, Section One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part Second, The Isabels, Chapter Five, Section One. The Gould carriage was the first to return from the harbour to the empty town. On the ancient pavement, laid out in patterns, sunk into ruts and holes, the portly Ignacio, mindful of the springs of the Parisian-built Landau, had pulled up to a walk, and Decoux, in his corner, contemplated moodily the inner aspect of the gate. The squat, turreted sides held up between them a mass of masonry with bunches of grass growing at the top, and a grey, heavily scrolled armorial shield of stone above the apex of the arch, with the arms of Spain nearly smoothed out as if in readiness for some new device typical of the impending progress. The explosive noise of the railway trucks seemed to augment Decoud's irritation. He muttered something to himself, then began to talk aloud in curt, angry phrases thrown at the silence of the two women. They did not look at him at all, while Don Jose, with his semi-translucent, waxy complexion, overshadowed by the soft grey hat, swayed a little to the jolts of the carriage by the side of Mrs. Gould. This sound puts a new edge on a very old truth. Decoud spoke in French, perhaps because of Ignacio on the box above him, the old coachman with his broad back filling a short silver-braided jacket, had a big pair of ears, whose thick rims stood well away from his cropped head. Yes, the noise outside the city wall is new, but the principle is old. He ruminated his discontent for a while, then began afresh with a sidelong glance at Antonia. No, but just imagine our forefathers in morions and corslets drawn up outside this gate, and a band of adventurers just landed from their ships in the harbour there. Thieves, of course, speculators too. Their expeditions, each one, were the speculations of grave and reverend persons in England. That is history, as that absurd sailor Mitchell is always saying. Mitchell's arrangements for the embarkation of the troops were excellent, exclaimed Don Jose. That, that, oh, that's really the work of that Genoese seaman. But to return to my noises, there used to be in the old days the sound of trumpets outside that gate. War trumpets. I'm sure they were trumpets. I have read somewhere that Drake, who was the greatest of these men, used to dine alone in his cabin on board ship to the sound of trumpets. In those days this town was full of wealth. Those men came to take it. Now the whole land is like a treasure house, and all these people are breaking into it whilst we are cutting each other's throats. The only thing that keeps them out is mutual jealousy, but they'll come to an agreement some day, and by the time we've settled our quarrels and become decent and honourable, there'll be nothing left for us. It has always been the same. We are a wonderful people, but it has always been our fate to be, he did not say robbed, but added after a pause, exploited. Mrs. Gould said, oh, this is unjust. And Antonio interjected, don't answer him, Amelia, he is attacking me. You surely do not think I was attacking Don Carlos, Decoud answered. And then the carriage stopped before the door of the Casa Gould. The young man offered his hand to the ladies. They went in first together. Don Jose walked by the side of Decoud, and the gouty old porter tottered after them with some light wraps on his arm. Don Jose slipped his hand under the arm of the journalist of Sulaco. 
The poor veneer must have a long and confident article upon Barrios and the irresistibleness of his army of Caeta. The moral effect should be, kept up in the country, we must cable encouraging extracts to Europe and the United States to maintain a favourable impression abroad. Deku muttered, oh yes, we must comfort our friends, the speculators. The long, open gallery was in shadow, with its screen of plants in vases along the balustrade, holding out motionless blossoms, and all the glass doors of the reception rooms thrown open. A jingle of spurs died out at the further end. Basilio, standing aside against the wall, said, in a soft tone to the passing ladies, The Senor Administrador is just back from the mountain. In the great sala, with its groups of ancient Spanish and modern European furniture, making as if different centres under the high white spread of the ceiling, the silver and porcelain of the tea servers gleamed among a cluster of dwarf chairs, like a bit of a lady's boudoir, putting in a note of feminine and intimate delicacy. Don José, in his rocking chair, placed his hat on his lap, and Decou walked up and down the whole length of the room, passing between tables loaded with knick-knacks and almost disappearing behind the high backs of leathern sofas. He was thinking of the angry face of Antonia. He was confident that he would make his peace with her. He had not stayed in Salaco to quarrel with Antonia. Martin Decou was angry with himself. All he saw and heard going on around him exasperated the preconceived views of his European civilization. To contemplate revolutions from the distance of the Parisian boulevards was quite another matter. Here, on the spot, it was not possible to dismiss their tragic comedy with an expression, quelle farce. The reality of the political action, such as it was, seemed closer, and acquired poignancy by Antonia's belief in the cause. Its crudeness hurt his feelings. He was surprised at his own sensitiveness. I suppose I am more of a Costaguanero than I would have believed possible, he thought to himself. His disdain grew like a reaction of his scepticism against the action into which he was forced by his infatuation for Antonia. He soothed himself by saying he was not a patriot, but a lover. The ladies came in bareheaded, and Mrs. Gould sank low before the little tea-table. Antonia took up her usual place at the reception hour, the corner of a leathern couch, with a rigid grace in her pose and a fan in her hand. Decoud, swerving from the straight line of his march, came to lean over the high back of her seat. For a long time he talked into her ear from behind, softly, with a half-smile and an air of apologetic familiarity. Her fan lay half-grasped on her knees. She never looked at him. His rapid utterance grew more and more insistent and caressing. At last he ventured a slight laugh. No, really, you must forgive me. One must be serious sometimes. He paused. She turned her head a little. Her blue eyes glided slowly towards him, slightly upwards, mollified and questioning. You can't think I am serious when I call Montero a gran bastia every second day in the Paul Veneer. That is not a serious occupation. No occupation is serious, not even when a bullet through the heart is the penalty of failure. Her hand closed firmly on her fan. Some reason, you understand, I mean some sense, may creep into thinking, some glimpse of truth, I mean some effective truth, for which there is no room in politics or journalism. I happen to have said what I thought, and you are angry. 
If you do me the kindness to think a little, you will see that I spoke like a patriot. She opened her red lips for the first time, not unkindly. Yes, but you never see the aim. Men must be used as they are. I suppose nobody is really disinterested, unless perhaps you, Don Martin. God forbid, it's the last thing I should like you to believe of me. He spoke lightly and paused. She began to fan herself with a slow movement without raising her hand. After a time, he whispered passionately, Antonia. She smiled and extended her hand after the English manner towards Charles Gould, who was bowing before her, while Decoux, with his elbows spread on the back of the sofa, dropped his eyes and murmured, Bonjour. The Senor Administrador of the San Tome mine bent over his wife for a moment. They exchanged a few words, of which only the phrase, The greatest enthusiasm, pronounced by Mrs. Gould, could be heard. Yes, Decoux began in a murmur, even he. This is sheer calumny, said Antonio, not very severely. You just ask him to throw his mine into the melting pot for the great cause, Decoux whispered. Don Jose had raised his voice. He rubbed his hands cheerily. The excellent aspect of the troops and the great quantity of the new, deadly rifles on the shoulders of those brave men seemed to fill him with an ecstatic confidence. Charles Gould, very tall and thin before his chair, listened, but nothing could be discovered in his face except a kind and deferential attention. Meantime, Antonia had risen and, crossing the room, stood looking out of one of the three long windows giving on the street. Decoux followed her. The window was thrown open and he leaned against the thickness of the wall, the long folds of the damask curtain falling straight from the broad brass cornice hid him partly from the room. He folded his arms on his breast and looked steadily at Antonia's profile. The people returning from the harbour filled the pavements. The shuffle of sandals and a low murmur of voices ascended to the window. Now and then a coach rolled slowly along the disjointed roadway of the Cal de la Constitution. There were not many private carriages in Sulaco. At the most crowded hour on the Almeida they could be counted with one glance of the eye. The great family arcs swayed on high leathern springs full of pretty powdered faces in which the eyes looked intensely alive and black. And first Don Juste Lopez, the president of the provincial assembly, passed with his three lovely daughters, solemn in a black frock coat and stiff white tie, as when directing a debate from a high tribune. Though they all raised their eyes, Antonia did not make the usual greeting gesture of a fluttered hand, and they affected not to see the two young people, costaguaneros with European manners whose eccentricities were discussed behind the barred windows of the first families in Sulaco. And then the widowed Senora Gavilazo de Valdez rolled by, handsome and dignified, in a great machine in which she used to travel to and from her country house, surrounded by an armed retinue in leather suits and big sombreros with carbines at the bows of their saddles. She was a woman of most distinguished family, proud, rich and kind-hearted, her second son, Jaime, had just gone off on the staff of Barrios. The eldest, a worthless fellow of a moody disposition, filled Salaco with the noise of his dissipations and gambled heavily at the club. The two youngest boys, with yellow Ribierist cockades in their caps, sat on the front seat. 
She, too, affected not to see Signor Decoud talking publicly with Antonia in defiance of every convention. And he, not even her novio, as far as the world knew, though even in that case it would have been scandal enough. But the dignified old lady, respected and admired by the first families, would have been still more shocked if she could have heard the words they were exchanging. Did you say I lost sight of the aim? I have only one aim in the world. She made an almost imperceptible negative movement of her head, still staring across the street at the Avellanos' house, grey, marked with decay and with iron bars like a prison. And it would be so easy of attainment, he continued, this aim which, whether knowingly or not, I have always had in my heart, ever since the day when you snubbed me so horribly once in Paris. You remember? A slight smile seemed to move the corner of the lip that was on his side. You know you are a very terrible person, a sort of Charlotte Corday in a schoolgirl's dress, a ferocious patriot. I suppose you would have stuck a knife into Gutzman Bento. She interrupted him. You do me too much honour. At any rate, he said, changing suddenly to a tone of bitter levity, you would have sent me to stab him without compunction. Ah, par exemple, she murmured in a shocked tone. Well, he argued mockingly, you do keep me here writing deadly nonsense, deadly to me. It has already killed my self-respect. And you may imagine, he continued, his tone passing into light banter, that Montero, should he be successful, would get even with me in the only way such a brute can get even with a man of intelligence who condescends to call him a gran bestia three times a week. It's a sort of intellectual death, but there is no other one in the background for a journalist of my ability. If he is successful, said Antonia thoughtfully. You seem satisfied to see my life hang on a thread, Deku replied with a broad smile. And the other Montero, the my trusted brother of the proclamation, the guerrillero, haven't I written that he was taking the guests' overcoats and changing plates in Paris at our legation in the intervals of spying on our refugees there in the time of Roja? He will wash out that sacred truth in blood, in my blood. Why do you look annoyed? This is simply a bit of the biography of one of our great men. What do you think he will do to me? There is a certain convent wall round the corner of the plaza opposite the door of the bull ring, you know, opposite the door with the inscription, Entrada de la Sombra. Appropriate, perhaps. That's where the uncle of our host gave up his Anglo-South American soul. And, note, he might have run away. A man who has fought with weapons may run away. You might have let me go with Barrios if you had cared for me. I would have carried one of those rifles in which Don Jose believes with the greatest satisfaction in the ranks of poor peons and indios that know nothing either of reason or politics. The most forlorn hope in the most forlorn army on earth would have been safer than that for which you made me stay here. When you make war you may retreat, but not when you spend your time in inciting poor ignorant fools to kill and to die. His tone remained light, and, as if unaware of his presence, she stood motionless, her hands clasped lightly, the fan hanging down from her interlaced fingers. He waited for a while, and then, I shall go to the wall, he said with a sort of jocular desperation. Even that declaration did not make her look at him. Her head remained still, her eyes fixed upon the house of the Avellanos, whose chip pilasters, broken cornices, the whole degradation of dignity was hidden now by the gathering dusk of the street. 
In her whole figure, her lips alone moved, forming the words, Martin, you will make me cry. He remained silent for a minute, startled, as if overwhelmed by a sort of awed happiness, with the lines of the mocking smile still stiffened about his mouth and incredulous surprise in his eyes. The value of a sentence is in the personality which utters it, for nothing new can be said by man or woman, and those were the last words, it seemed to him, that could ever have been spoken by Antonia. He had never made it up with her so completely in all their intercourse of small encounters. But even before she had time to turn towards him, which he did slowly with a rigid grace, he had begun to plead, my sister is only waiting to embrace you. My father is transported with joy. I won't say anything of my mother. Our mothers were like sisters. There is the mailboat for the south next week. Let us go. That Moraga is a fool. A man like Montero is bribed. It's the practice of the country. It's tradition. It's politics. Read fifty years of misrule. Leave poor Papa alone, Don Martin. He believes. I have the greatest tenderness for your father, he began hurriedly. But I love you, Antonia, and Moraga has miserably mismanaged this business. Perhaps your father did too. I don't know. Montero was bribable. Why, I suppose he only wanted his share of this famous loan for national development. Why didn't the stupid Santa Marta people give him a mission to Europe or something? He would have taken five years' salary in advance and gone on loafing in Paris, this stupid, ferocious India. The man, she said thoughtfully and very calm before this outburst, was intoxicated with vanity. We had all the information, not from Moraga only, from others too. There was his brother intriguing too. Oh, yes, he said, of course you know, you know everything. You read all the correspondence, you write all the papers, all those state papers that are inspired here in this room in blind deference to a theory of political purity. Hadn't you Charles Gould before your eyes, Ray de Salaco? He and his mine are the practical demonstration of what could have been done. Do you think he succeeded by his fidelity to a theory of virtue? And all those railway people with their honest work, of course their work is honest, but what if you cannot work honestly till the thieves are satisfied? Could he not, a gentleman, have told this Sir John What's-His-Name that Montero had to be bought off, he and all his negro liberals hanging on to his gold-laced sleeve? He ought to have been bought off with his own stupid weight of gold, his weight of gold, I tell you, boots, sabres, spurs, cocked hat and all. She shook her head slightly. It was impossible, she murmured. He wanted the whole lot? What? She was facing him now in the deep recess of the window, very close and motionless. Her lips moved rapidly. Decoud, leaning his back against the wall, listened with crossed arms and lowered eyelids. He drank the tones of her even voice and watched the agitated life of her throat as if waves of emotion had run from her heart to pass out into the air in her reasonable words. He also had his aspirations. He aspired to carry her away out of these deadly futilities of pronunciamentos and reforms. All this was wrong, utterly wrong, but she fascinated him. And sometimes the sheer sagacity of a phrase would break the charm, replace the fascination by a sudden unwilling thrill of interest. Some women hovered, as it were, on the threshold of genius, he reflected. They did not want to know or think or understand. Passion stood for all that, and he was ready to believe that some startlingly profound remark, some appreciation of character or a judgment upon an event, bordered on the miraculous. 
In the mature Antonia he could see with an extraordinary vividness the austere schoolgirl of the earlier days. She seduced his attention. Sometimes he could not restrain a murmur of assent. Now and then he advanced an objection quite seriously. Gradually they began to argue. The curtain half hid them from the people in the sala. Outside it had grown dark. From the deep trenches of shadow between the houses, lit up vaguely by the glimmer of street lamps, ascending the evening silence of Salako, the silence of a town with few carriages, of unshod horses and a softly sandaled population. The windows of the Casa Gould flung their shining parallelograms upon the house of the Avianos. Now and then a shuffle of feet passed below with the pulsating red glow of a cigarette at the foot of the walls, and the night air, as if cooled by the snows of Hikarota, refreshed their faces. We Occidentals, said Martin Decoux, using the usual term the provincials of Salako applied to themselves, have been always distinct and separated. As long as we hold Kaita, nothing can reach us. In all our troubles, no army has marched over those mountains. A revolution in the central provinces isolates us at once. Look how complete it is now. The news of Barrios's movement will be cabled to the United States, and only in that way will it reach Santa Marta by the cable from the other seaboard. We have the greatest riches, the greatest fertility, the purest blood in our great families, the most laborious population. The Occidental province should stand alone. The early federalism was not bad for us. Then came this union which Don Henrique Gould resisted. It opened the road to tyranny. And ever since the rest of Costaguana hangs like a millstone round our necks, the Occidental territory is large enough to make any man's country. Look at the mountains. Nature itself seems to cry to us, separate. She made an energetic gesture of negation. A silence fell. Oh yes, I know, it's contrary to the doctrine laid down in the history of fifty years' misrule. I'm only trying to be sensible. But my sense seems always to give you cause for offence. Have I startled you very much with this perfectly reasonable aspiration? She shook her head. No, she was not startled. But the idea shocked her early convictions. Her patriotism was larger. She had never considered that possibility. It may yet be the means of saving some of your convictions, he said prophetically. She did not answer. She seemed tired. They leaned side by side on the rail of the little balcony, very friendly, having exhausted politics, giving themselves up to the silent feeling of their nearness in one of those profound pauses that fall upon the rhythm of passion. Towards the plaza end of the street, the growing coals in the braseros of the market women cooking their evening meal gleamed red along the edge of the pavement. A man appeared without a sound in the light of a street lamp, showing the coloured inverted triangle of his boarded poncho, square on his shoulders, hanging to a point below his knees. From the harbour end of the Calais, a horseman walked his soft-stepping mount, gleaming silver-grey abreast each lamp under the dark shape of the rider. Behold the illustrious Capitas de Cargadores, said Decoud gently, coming in all his splendour after his work is done, the next great man of Salaco after Don Carlos Gould. But he is good-natured, and let me make friends with him. Ah, indeed, said Antonio, how did you make friends? 
A journalist ought to have his finger on the popular pulse, and this man is one of the leaders of the populace. A journalist ought to know remarkable men, and this man is remarkable in his way. Ah, yes, said Antonio thoughtfully, it is known that this Italian has a great influence. The horseman had passed below them with a gleam of dim light on the shining broad quarters of the grey mare, on a bright heavy stirrup, on a long silver spur, but the short flick of yellowish flame in the dusk was powerless against the muffled-up mysteriousness of the dark figure with an invisible face concealed by a great sombrero. Decoux and Antonia remained leaning over the balcony, side by side, touching elbows, with their heads overhanging the darkness of the street and the brilliantly lighted sala at their backs. This was a tete-a-tete of extreme impropriety, something of which in the whole extent of the Republic only the extraordinary Antonia could be capable. The poor, motherless girl never accompanied with a careless father who had thought only of making her learned. Even Decoux himself seemed to feel that this was as much as he could expect of having her to himself till, till the revolution was over and he could carry her off to Europe, away from the endlessness of civil strife whose folly seemed even harder to bear than its ignominy. After one Montero there would be another, the lawlessness of a populace of all colours and races, barbarism, irremediable tyranny. As the great liberator Bolivar had said in the bitterness of his spirit, America is ungovernable, those who worked for her independence have ploughed the sea. He did not care, he declared boldly. He seized every opportunity to tell her that though she had managed to make a blanco journalist of him, he was no patriot. First of all, the word had no sense for cultured minds to whom the narrowness of every belief is odious. And secondly, in connection with the everlasting troubles of this unhappy country, it was hopelessly besmirched. It had been the cry of dark barbarism, the cloak of lawlessness, of crimes, of rapacity, of simple thieving. He was surprised at the warmth of his own utterance. He had no need to drop his voice. It had been low all the time, a mere murmur in the silence of dark houses, with their shutters closed early against the night air, as is the custom of Sulaco. Only the siler of the Casa Gould flung out defiantly the blaze of its four windows, the bright appeal of light in the whole dumb obscurity of the street, and the murmur on the little balcony went on after a short pause. But we are labouring to change all that, Antonia protested. It is exactly what we desire. It is our object. It is the great cause. And the word you despise has stood also for sacrifice, for courage, for constancy, for suffering. Papa, who... Ploughing the sea, interrupted Decoux, looking down. There was below the sound of hasty and ponderous footsteps. Your uncle, the grand vicar of the cathedral, has just turned under the gate, observed Decoux. He said mass for the troops in the plaza this morning. They had built for him an altar of drums, you know, and they brought outside all the painted blocks to take the air. All the wooden saints stood militarily in a row at the top of the great flight of steps. They looked like a gorgeous escort attending the vicar-general. I saw the great function from the windows of the poor veneer. He is amazing, your uncle, the last of the Corbelins. He glittered exceedingly in his vestments with a great crimson velvet cross down his back, and all the time our saviour Barrios sat in the Amarilla Club drinking punch at an open window. 
Esprit four, our barrios. I expected every moment your uncle to launch an excommunication there and then at the black eye patch in the window across the plaza, but not at all. Ultimately, the troops marched off. Later, Barrios came down with some of the officers and stood with his uniform, all unbuttoned, discoursing at the edge of the pavement. Suddenly, your uncle appeared, no longer glittering but all black at the cathedral door with that threatening aspect he has, you know, like a sort of avenging spirit. He gives one look, strides over straight at the group of uniforms and leads away the general by the elbow. He walked him for a quarter of an hour in the shade of a wall, never let go his elbow for a moment, talking all the time with exultation and gesticulating with a long black arm. It was a curious scene. The officers seemed struck with astonishment. Remarkable man, your missionary uncle. He hates an infidel much less than a heretic and prefers a heathen many times to an infidel. He condescends graciously to call me a heathen sometimes, you know. Antonia listened with her hands over the balustrade, opening and shutting the fan gently. And Decoud talked a little nervously, as if afraid that she would leave him at the first pause. Their comparative isolation, the precious sense of intimacy, the slight contact of their arms, affected him softly, for now and then a tender inflection crept into the flow of his ironic murmurs. Any slight sign of favour from a relative of yours is welcome, Antonio. And perhaps he understands me after all. But I know him too, our Padre Corbelan. The idea of political honour, justice and honesty for him consists in the restitution of the confiscated church property. Nothing else could have drawn that fierce converter of savage Indians out of the wilds to work for the Ribierist cause. Nothing else but that wild hope he would make a pronunciamento himself for such an object against any government if he could only get followers. What does Don Carlos Gould think of that? But of course, with his English impenetrability, no one can tell what he thinks. Probably he thinks of nothing apart from his mine, of his imperium in imperio. As to Mrs Gould, she thinks of her schools, of her hospitals, of the mothers with the young babies, of every sick old man in the three villages. If you were to turn your head now, you would see her extracting a report from that sinister doctor in a check shirt. What's his name? Monaghan? Or as catechising Don Pepe, or perhaps listening to Padre Roman. They are all down here today. All her ministers of state. Well, she is a sensible woman, and perhaps Don Carlos is a sensible man. It's a part of solid English sense not to think too much, to see only what may be of practical use at the moment. These people are not like ourselves. We have no political reason, but we have political passions, sometimes. What is a conviction? A particular view of our personal advantage, either practical or emotional. No one is a patriot for nothing. The word serves us well, but I am clear-sighted, and I shall not use that word to you, Antonia. I have no patriotic illusions. I have only the supreme illusion of a lover. He paused, then muttered almost inaudibly. That can lead one very far, though. End of part second, The Isabels, chapter five, section one.